And now, it's time for that great new game show. It's the PowerShell Podcast. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. The PowerShell Podcast. Something new, something revolutionary. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm mediocre host Jordan with ultra mega superstar Andrew Plaw. And today we have special guest Guy Leach, who is Microsoft MVP. I feel like that's only the scratching the surface of all your accolades here. I love that. That's one of them, but the, it's the community that really give me the accolades. I, you could list Citrix CTP, VMware vExpert, and Parallels VIPP if you wanted, but they're just stickers on my laptop, really. That's all, all hard-earned stuff. So... I'm, I'm excited. Is PowerShell, I was curious, is PowerShell something that kind of helps you branch across all of those different areas where you can use PowerShell on each one of them? Or is it just you've mastered a whole bunch of things because that's the kind of guy you are? Um, it, it, it's kind of a kind of a mixture, really. And that, you know, long before I got into to PowerShell, although you know, I've been into coding for five decades now. I know I don't look old enough or sound sensible enough, but I have been. Um Long before that, I was, I was known for sort of troubleshooting skills, particularly in the end user computing environment that I got to got into way back in 1995 with uh, NT351, which used to install on 30-fly floppy disks, which was nice. And so then I sort of built a, some tools around that in C++. And then when PowerShell came around, sort of, oh, let's do some troubleshooting tools and scripts and so on in, in PowerShell, as well as you know, the, the automation pieces and that and that sort of stuff. So it fits across any any Windows platform, really. I mean, underneath, yeah, Citrix, VMware, Parallels, they're all pretty much the same. It's lots of users on, on machines, and they're virtual instead of physical, but they can be physical. So it's just troubleshooting Windows problems, really, which is where the scripts you know, fit. So you know, people outside of the end user computer space, you know, just looking at general AD problems, or now with Azure and other stuff, because I've, I've branched out there, can you know, look and use my scripts or you know, my tips that I put out pretty much daily. And if I find something, then I tend to put it out on Twitter, not to help other people initially. It was more so that when I've forgotten what I've done about it in you know, three weeks, and I go, how did I fix that problem? I can just go to Twitter, my personal knowledge base, and search for a few search terms from my account. And lo and behold, there it is. And then I found you know, a few other people seem to like that information as well. They don't tend to like the dad jokes so much, but hey, life's too short, isn't it, to be serious the whole time? So a mix of registry keys, PowerShell tips, troubleshooting tips, and some pretty horrendous dad jokes. Uh, I will say everyone loves dad jokes. There's just people that are open about it and those that are living in denial. Oh, dad I've jokes. met a few people who I'm not going to name who yeah get get tired of me within two minutes. I was at a traveling to a, a, a conference with some people I met up with, and within five minutes, they were, shut up, guy. No, I've had enough of those. <laughs> okay, your loss, which just makes me do them even more. <laughs> well, I haven't taken an official poll of uh, fans of the show, but I'm going to say right now, 100% of us love dad jokes, so bring them on. <laughs> well, people say, well, how do you rehearse them and everything? And, I, and generally, I don't. You know, they just kind of slip in as, as I'm thinking. 
Uh, although I have done some actual IT comedy stand-up routines. So a couple of events last year, the Citrix user group in Norway that I got invited to speak at with a sensible session. I also did a, a comedy session there with all IT-related jokes. And I repeated that at a, an event called the EUC Masters Retreat in the, in the States last year. So all the jokes, some one-liners and some visual gags, but they're all IT-related. And that seemed to, to go down quite well. Well, I didn't get anything thrown at me anyway, so I, I think that's okay. That is interesting. I, I never thought about IT stand-up comedy. Well, I'm working on version two of my deck now. So the version one, which has only been seen, I think, three times. So I'm looking for more events to give it. But those events where I've given it already, I've got – how many slides have I got? I think I've got about um, – just to look at it now. Because it's always open. If I see something or I think of something, I'll put it in. It's not all my own work, but I'll put a you know, a credit in the uh, in the credits at the end if it's not. Um, yeah, I'm up to 35 slides now ready for, for version two. All right. Well, it seems like we need to find you a – a, a place to give it a trial run yeah well i was holding off doing those because i started it in covid but it's really the sort of thing you have to do face to face because if you've ever tried cracking any jokes on a virtual <laughs> call particularly when you can't see the audience at all it's like now did that go down like the proverbial lead balloon <laughs> or tumbleweed or people you know just laughing themselves silly you just you just can't tell that's why you know, i hate presenting to to virtual conferences particularly when there's no cameras anywhere except on me and yeah my, my face is enough to start some people laughing or one <laughs> of my faces anyway i completely agree about the whole not being able to read people i had to do an interview over zoom one time and it is not a great feeling to deliver an answer to a question and not really be able to like gauge the reactions of everyone you just kind of like out there trusting yourself like okay i guess we'll keep going yeah i think we all got a bit virtualed out in that covid time didn't we but it was certainly better than nothing having some sort of interaction i mean oh, yeah. for instance you know as soon as i join any call now i have my camera on pre-covid i would never bother with my camera so what i'm, what I'm hearing is going all virtual like that made all the social people have to live life like i live every day where you have no idea how anyone's responding to, in a social situation i'm, I'm not <laughs> sympathetic to your plight <laughs> No, it's good to be able to get back to face-to-face -face stuff. Although there's there's not that much of it around at the moment, and I'm yeah, I've got used to to not traveling. I think that you are presenting at some in-person events this year, are you not? I may indeed be. Yes, it's good to to get out and have a few um, non-alcoholic beers with uh, with people. Or what I've got to be careful of is not drinking too much water. The last conference I went to, I was drinking water instead of beer, but I kept up the same quantity. And being an old man as well. Guess what I was doing most of the night? <laughs> yes, fantastic. Dancing, yeah. Oh, I've, I've got a bit of dad dancing. Yeah, I like to show people my moves. Yeah. So to take us back the programming path, so you said five decades. So when did you first write code? What's your origin story with that? My first code was written round about 1980 when you were minus how many years old? 30. Yeah. Uh, my my late father worked at a at a well some metals companies to do all sorts of metal products, but he ended up being a a COBOL systems programmer for them. So early adopters of computing technology he used to bring their computer printout sheets, which were very interesting. Not, but had blank paper on the other side I could draw on and punch cards for playing with and paper tape even. 
but then he brought this Commodore PET back from his office. I don't know if you know a Commodore PET, but it's a self-contained pre-PC, you know, eight-bit computer. And he brought lots of games home on uh, cassette tape. So you have to spend five or ten minutes waiting for them to load, then play these games. Uh, and then I thought, well, that's a bit boring. Why don't I look at how these games are, are written? Most of them are written in uh, BASIC. So I had a look at them and thought, yeah, well, let's let's do some cheat stuff in here. Yeah, the, the origin of cheat codes is actually to go in and change the code itself. So, you know, make things go faster, give myself more lives, that sort of stuff. And then thought, okay, well, I'm going to write my own stuff. But then got into uh, 6502 assembly language, uh, wrote some utilities, sort of tape copying and other things like that. So as a, as a teenager, I had a... Uh, unofficial contract with a, a local computer shop who'd buy like you know, 100 tapes of these utilities off me at a time so as he, as the guy used to say to me you know it was better than doing a, a paper round and going delivering papers in the wet just to sit at home on my commodore vic 20 which was the first computer we bought and then a, a commodore 64 which i never actually owned because they they lent me one uh so i came out with those utilities and earned a, a book or two as a as a teenager then thought, okay, what shall I do education-wise? Oh, okay, go and do a computer science degree, although that was 50% uh, hardware. And hardware is not something I can really get on with at all, but I managed to find somebody who liked the hardware, didn't like the software. I liked the software, didn't like the hardware, so that was a, a match made in heaven. So I could go to the uh, the pub that opened at 11 o'clock in the morning uh, because the lab hardware labs were all in the afternoons. He'd do those, and I'd do the software. Um, I suppose I can't get my degree taken off me now, but that's uh, that's okay, given I graduated in 1988. Uh, and then I went into uh, Unix programming. You know, Unix, the guys with no... Uh, oh, no, that's Unix, sorry. Uh, writing device drivers for uh, a, a, B, a British telco, British Telecom, you may, may have heard of back then. Um, so, so late 80s, they had their own Motorola 68,000-based computers with their and they were source code licensee of unix system 5 you know this is long before linux came around so i wrote SCSI and sd uh, device drivers and various other device drivers for those on my uh, my green screen 80 line uh 25 column machine attached to a, a serial port on one of these servers that was that was great fun and I spent six years doing Unix stuff before getting into, um, so Citrix WinFrame based on NT351 and its 35 floppy disk install. I had to learn about AD domains and all this sort of stuff, which I'd, I'd never heard of before, having worked on the uh, the dark side, or is it the light side? Depends whether you're a, a Unix person or a, a Windows person. So I, I, I tread both boards. Um, so that's kind of where I, I, I started my programming life anyway. But uh, would somebody else like to talk? So I was I was just curious because you, you jumped from all these languages, it sounds like, by necessity. Just uh, So was it, how was it learning each new language? Is it like always starting over or are a lot of the skills you have in one transfer, you just have to learn some of the differences? It's just really learning the syntax. So it's having that sort of brain or... or, or uh, methods of looking at a problem, breaking it down into constituent parts and think, how am I going to code that? Because the, you know, I, I, as I said, I've done Commodore Basic, which is a, a, a high level language as it's known, and assembly language is you know, very low level. So you're 
basically doing instruction by instruction, which is painful. It's fast, but painful. Uh, I don't miss it, even though there's lots of retro 8-bit groups around and in lots of 6502. And it's like, no, those, those days have gone now. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it at the time, even though I can still remember some of the, the op codes and their hex equivalents, because I used to have to hand code it before I got my first macro assembler package. And... Uh, but then when you could, uh, so at the university, for instance, their high-level language of choice was Pascal. But then we had to learn Fortran and do bits of COBOL and some other even more esoteric languages. But most of those I used to just prototype on my Commodore and then convert the syntax to you know, whatever language was required. And, that, and that's where I really, I suppose, I got into to PowerShell, and VBS before that, C Sharp. And it's just, it's really you know what you want you know what you want to write you just had to figure out the syntax and that seems to be the, a lot of the barriers you know if i go back to something like vbs now then that's a pain because i can't remember the syntax so i have to go and find another script and, and copy and paste it and figure it out but because i'm churning out powershell pretty much uh, all day every day then yeah you know, i can the dream, write, yeah. at least write those from scratch <laughs> so that's that's what so it sounds like a lot of the uh, framework or the core principles never change, but if syntax. So with PowerShell being human readable, was that like a quick transition more like even compared to others or where was it different enough where it was more of a struggle? Uh, th that was one of those frustrating ones in that it was something I'd, I'd, I'd seen and, and this was going, we're only going back here to about 2014. So I'm a, a relatively a newbie in terms of PowerShell, given it's it's in its teens now, isn't it? So it's been around a lot longer than I've been using it. But every time I came to a problem, I thought, oh, I really should use PowerShell for this because it looks and sounds quite interesting. It's like, yeah, but I need to do this quickly and I don't quite know the syntax and it would take me longer to do it. So I'm going to just go and do it quickly in VBS or CMD or something like that rather than saying, no, okay, well, this isn't urgent. Like, if it takes me two days extra and I can get it in PowerShell, and even back then, there were lots of good samples on the good old internet. So you could go and find something that vaguely matched what you wanted to, try and understand it, you know, modify it, and and then sort of struggle when you get lots of red on the screen with the errors and this isn't working. What what's going on here? And yeah, so that that there's there's a there's a steep learning curve with it, even when you know other languages. I think just because the syntax. Perhaps it's because I'd been in a C, C++, C sharp world where it's all relatively similar. You, know, you can take C code and pretty much almost bash it straight into C sharp. Can't quite do it the other way around, but they've all sort of evolved, whereas PowerShell's a little bit different. It's not that crazy like something like Lisp that I had to use back in my Unix days, for, which is just all brackets. It's mind-blowing, particularly when you've got to do it in the same day as doing C++, you're doing the same thing in two different languages, completely different languages. So, yeah, it, it's getting the syntax. And I think for anybody, and I, I see this frustration, I hear this from people, is you know, if you don't do it enough, so you write one PowerShell script every three months, then when you come back to it, it's like, oh, I've forgotten how to do this, I've forgotten how to do that. But because I do it sort of typically eight days a week, in fact, this weekend was the first time I've not touched my laptop for months. And people say, well, you need some downtime. But to be honest, I quite like getting a blank sheet of paper or a blank ISC window. Let's not go there versus VS Code. And I'm going to write something from scratch. And I think that's like a, an artist with a, you know, a piece, blank piece of paper. 
I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go do something. This isn't paid work that I have to produce by such and such. You know, I'll, I'll sit down when my uh, other half is watching some terrible television, which is most of the time. So I'm, I'm quite happy sat next to them on my laptop where I can just code away into my heart's desire, which is where a lot of the community stuff comes from. So if you go on my GitHub repo, there's the last count, I think something like 140 scripts split across various categories, you know, Citrix, Microsoft, uh, VMware, but ultimately a lot for sort of troubleshooting, automation, uh, building of things. Um, and, and yeah, that's where a lot of community work comes in. So to get to get those recognitions, awards and, and, and stickers, obviously the stickers are the most important thing to me um, by a long shot. <laughs> one has to do quite a lot of work in the in the community but you know it it pays off in in those terms pays off in speaking gigs uh and then and it you know it pays off in getting me work as well so people go oh yeah you're your guy leech yeah you can come and do this for us as long as you don't tell any dad jokes so that that helps as well but yeah i, I firmly believe in a community and yeah putting back into it what you what you take out i know not everybody's a natural sort of performer and speaker but there's lots of other ways people can be involved by putting stuff on GitHub, by by blogging. I, I haven't blogged for a long time, but I tend to use Twitter as a, a micro blog, as in, oh, if you've got this problem, do this. That may span several tweets, but pushing out a whole blog, I tend to do just for uh, vendors that engage me these days. I love hearing that. Um, we always try and highlight that doing things publicly, writing documentation, blogs, projects, whatever, it is. It can be very self-serving. It can lead to a lot of positive things for you. It's not just, oh, doing it for the people. While it can feel good to do that, it's also, like you said, it can lead to direct work. It can open up new doors for you. It can present new opportunities. Um, it's always great to see that. And also just sharing your ideas on Twitter and just sharing as you go and creating kind of a personal knowledge base for yourself is also another thing we hear a lot of people have success with. Sorry, I've got a lot of background noise. Though. My granddaughter's outside. <laughs> <laughs> she's having fun. Yeah, you're going to have to ask it again. I'm sorry. It's just nice that she's that interested in learning about, you know, programming and development. Oh, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it's, that's actually quite a good point because my, my son this week is officially, he's 20, what is he, 28. He's officially started a development role at the uh, UK internet bank he works for. So he is now officially a third generation programmer. Because my my father, like I say, was a COBOL programmer, and he got into BASIC after he after he retired. You know, I've, I've been a and still am a professional developer, and now my my son is as well. I'm, I'm, I don't think there's going to be that many third generation developers around at the moment. And you know, as soon as my granddaughter's old enough, so probably you know, I don't know how how young they start these days. But I mean, she's two and a half at the moment, so probably a little bit too young. We'll see if she wants to get into coding as well. If she doesn't, absolutely fine. There'll be absolutely no force applied whatsoever. But like with a lot of things, you know, you start people, the younger they start, generally if they take to it, you know, the better they can be. So a fourth generation coder potentially, now that would be, I, don't, I can't say that would be unique, but I don't think, I think it would be rare. That would be yeah. awesome. As far as how young, my daughter was eight when she first started. She's, uh, Starting in Java script and then moving into C sharp. But I have no idea if that's an interest for her. I just figured she showed an interest at her youth and knowing that information, 
it's never going to be harmful. But absolutely, turns into a career as a big one. Yeah, yeah. I think this is why I'm grateful for my parents never really steering me towards anything, just yeah, being there to support me. And if you you have to, if you want to try something great, if you don't want to do it, then then don't do it. Yeah, and another thing that kind of goes along with what you said earlier that I've been finding myself saying to people regularly lately is that PowerShell is a language, and with regular use, you get fluency, um, like with any other language. And it sounds like you use it regular, you're fluent in multiple languages, and to the point where, you know, sitting down with a blank slate, uh, it feels like a very creative, fun process. Um, and to take that back to, you mentioned solving a lot of questions for the community and all these different communities uh, using some PowerShell knowledge. Uh, what advice do you have for people asking questions and asking for help? Um, are there any tips or things that you like seeing when someone asks you for help or some things that, that are really uh, red flags? Um, yeah. What a good question, says he's stalling for time and thinking. Um, I, lo I love the fact that we don't script these things. <laughs> I have some good uh, ideas if, if you want. <laughs> no, 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 that's no, fine. I, I always like to see that people have had a little bit of a, a, of a try themselves. Yeah. So I wouldn't dream of yeah, putting something out there saying, oh, this doesn't work. Please fix it for me without at least having tried to understand the issue, um, searched a few things on the, the Internet. Notice I didn't use the word Google because I, I use DuckDuckGo. Uh, sometimes use Bing if I don't want to look, find what I'm looking for, but uh, most of the time I do. Um, so I like people to have done a little bit of, yeah, of research themselves. But if they, if, you know, if they know I know the answer, Oh, you guy! I know you did this six months ago. How did you solve it, please? And then hopefully I can go back in my tweets, which hopefully they may have looked at as well. But who knows? I can go back in my tweets or my uh, GitHub scripts and say, "Oh yeah, here's here's how I did that." Nice. I had some thoughts on some things that make a good question because we've been getting some questions lately, which is be specific. And provide as much detail as possible. Oh, Explain what you've already tried. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Talking some of the um, award programs I'm in, you get emails on the you know, internal distribution lists where somebody, you know, somebody will go, "I had a problem with this," and that's you know, that's a technical person who's selling technical services to a customer, and then when we report into the vendor, there's absolutely no information whatsoever, no error message, no screenshots, nothing specific whatsoever. And I'm thinking, if your customer did that to you, you wouldn't be very happy. So why have you just done it in front of hundreds of your peers and, and the vendor who thinks you're very clever? Because I, I think that doesn't make you look very clever when you just go, there's a problem. Yeah, thanks. Could you be a bit more vague, please? Yeah, I, I tend to think that they're probably just stressed out and not thinking clearly um, whenever I see that type of thing. But I, I definitely experience that too a lot where you would expect someone to put a little bit more thought into their request, but they just get a blurt, which mm. it, it's kind of like someone who messages, messages you and just says hello with nothing else. It's like, <laughs> so we have to just extend this further. I'm going to say hello to you and you're then you're going to ask me the question. It's like, yeah, so be well, concise. How many people have ping me and say can i ask you a question i said you just did did you want to ask another one <laughs> that was your one and the <laughs> yeah, answer was, was yes. just used it up <laughs> we sell credits uh, but uh, another one was explain what you've already tried and the results you got 
it, that helps to see that people have actually put in some effort and are looking for something. Um, include any relevant code snippets or screenshots. Describe the expected behavior and the actual behavior. Provide any error messages or logs. And read the error messages too, because so often people don't read the actual error How message. How many times I've, and I, yeah, I say to people jokingly, oh yeah, you see some red on the screen and you run away screaming, ah, there's an error. Did you actually read it? No, I was too busy running away. Well, why don't you read the error? And in fact, one of my presentations, I think it's on my YouTube channel, which again, I've uh, neglected to send it to you. Um, Covers covers that sort of error checking is one of the big things I see a lot of uh, a, a lot a lot of lack of with people scripts is you know they'll write something just to get it going sort of yep this works but yeah but what happens now if I'm using this in my enterprise across you know x thousand users I want to make it robust and reliable then I need a little bit of error checking to make sure I don't continue if something fundamental has happened you know I'm going to read a config file. And then do a whole load of actions based on the config file. But I can't read the config file. Are you going to carry on your script? Oh, well, I've seen that. I've, I've done. I've fixed that one for a customer recently. They're saying, well, I just get pages and pages of these red errors. I don't know where to start. Well, you start at the top. But if it's a fatal error, then you, you get out of there. But then you also explain why it's a fatal error. You don't just go, oh, program aborted, error seven. Thank you. Yeah, error seven. That's particularly useful. Well, it says maybe having looked at a SQL error, level this, code that, even still today. And you have to go and look it up and go, oh, that's access denied. Right, thank you. Why couldn't you just say access denied? And say access denied, you know, what to? What were you trying to do? Were you trying to get read access to a file, write access to a file? Oh, this module was missing. Okay, would you like me to install it for you? Or why don't you get, here's the URL where you can get it from. Make your errors or warnings as specific as you possibly can. And if it's an error that you don't need to show your user because you've worked around it or it's not fatal or anything like that, hide it completely. Yeah. The, so it's all kind of, yeah, there's, there's a whole talk. I think I did one at a PowerShell user group, which ended up being several hours because it was like, here's all the stuff we really need to do for error checking. Here's the things we, we can do. And you, you suddenly realize that there's a, there's a whole load of stuff. You know, if something returns an, a value, well, it returns a value for a reason. Check it. Check the error channel. So if, if you've been thorough with your, your error handling and you have all these exceptions, do you have like a catch-all say, if it misses all of these, then just throw out this message? I, I, I tend to write at the top level of script. So I have a, a try, catch, finally block. So if there are any uncaught exceptions at lower levels, because that's the idea with an exception, is you could throw one when you're 20 levels down in function, you know, in nested function calls, and then you don't need to have an error handler at every level. But the problem is, if you unwind right to the top, then there's nothing you can really do because you've come out of all your code. But at least you can put a, a sensible error message. But the idea behind me using a try-catch finally is in the finally block, you can put cleanup code in. So if you've created, you know, temporary files, let's say you were doing something to create an ISO file and you've created gigs and gigs and giggity gigs of data and you get an error, then why don't you have uh, have a tidy up routine? How do you guarantee that's going to get called all the time? Well, if you trap lots of errors all over the place, then you might call it in each of those error loops, but it gets inefficient, which is where exceptions can be useful. In that you know you have this finally block, which even if you have an exception and throw an exception saying oh, I couldn't do this, we're getting out of here, 
then you can tidy up and delete those temporary files, remove things, rename things that you've renamed or, or whatever else. And that finally block will get executed whether the exception happens or not. So you always know or close log files, for instance. So it's always good. You know, if, you, if your script creates something, then generally it's a good idea to, to tidy it up, I find. I think if you've created an error so bad that the finally block can't even launch, then you've done something special. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I don't think it's this week or it might have been this week. Oh, no, I think I managed to crash PowerShell itself yesterday. I was I was playing around with trying to work out what com objects you could invoke from PowerShell. And at one point, yeah, PowerShell itself stopped working with a C605 exit code, which off the top of my head, I think, again, is an access denied. Access denied to what? Who knows? It wasn't a very useful error message, but... It wasn't the end of the world. Just start a new PowerShell session, and uh, and and away you go. But yeah, sometimes you just need a clean slate. Jordan, absolutely. Can we get a little controversial here, okay. <gasps> guy? What is your PowerShell hot take? My PowerShell hot take. Yes, the steamier the better. <sighs> I've seen some pretty awful scripts in my time, but I don't want to pick on individual individual people and i don't want to say i'm perfect because i'm not i'm I'm still learning in the same way that you know everybody else learns i mean i'll put something out there hey this is what i did to solve this problem then somebody will go why didn't you just do that oh okay so I'm, I'm known for my love of regular expressions because i've been doing them since oof, 1988 when you know global search and replace and find and things like that in my editor of choice on my green screen was something called vi um which i still know all all no, probably not all, but a lot of the arcane codes for, but um, yeah, regular expressions were part parcel of that. And I'll use regular expressions to solve a lot of problems because I find them easy again because I'm using them day in, day out. So I become fluent in a subset of them. And again, yeah, there's some bits I don't I don't know in those, but I, I use the simple bits. So I might use a regular expression to solve something. And people go, Why didn't you just use that commandlet? Oh, yeah, thank you. But yeah, a lot of scripts I see from people, I see a lot of repetition. I see a lot of repetition. That was a joke. Um, where people have copied and pasted. You know, as I say to people, you know, if you're copying and pasting something more than once in a script, you're probably doing it wrong. Because if you're copying and pasting and not changing anything, you're definitely doing it wrong. Yeah, that's a function straight away. If you're copying and pasting and only changing a few bits of what you've pasted, then that's a function with parameters. So there's somebody in an, uh, in the EUC community whose scripts typically are tens of thousands of lines long. And the, the most important thing is that script does what it's set out to do. Yeah, so that is by far and away the most important thing with any PowerShell script. Because I'll get people coming to me going, guy, my code's not very slick. It's not very readable. Does it solve the problem? Yes, it does. Job done then. Yeah. Perhaps your next one you can make a little bit better, and I can give them I can give them some yeah uh, constructive feedback on where perhaps may, they may go better next time. But the important thing is you know, that it works. So if it's thirty thousand lines long and you could condense it into three, yeah, maybe you've got a few too many comments in there. <laughs> but on the whole, yeah, just. Right, right. It can use meaningful identifiers. A, B, C, and D aren't great variable names. Even I, as a variable name, I don't use. Why not use the word index? Yeah. Gone are the days I have to squeeze code into my the three and a half kilobytes. No, so use the word kilobytes of my Commodore VIC 20. And 
Yeah, so now we've got so much memory, we can we don't have to be uh, so sloppy. And we we the old people like me, fat fingers. We don't have to worry about typos. Can we just use you know, IntelliSense and tab completion or control space completion, which seems to be something when I do a lot of live demo. Well, in fact, there's no no such thing other than a live demo. Is that a recorded demo is a recording? So I only ever do live demos. And which mostly don't fall on their face, but if they do, well, you work around it or you do some impromptu power, um, troubleshooting. So if a script gives me uh, an error message, I'll go, oh, let's look at, and uh, see what that error message is is all about. Uh, what was the question that you asked me about half an hour ago? The PowerShell hot take. Yeah. Um... And now you mentioned the ISC earlier. Yeah, well, this is the religious wars, isn't it? In the old days, it was VI versus Emacs, uh, which is actually quite relevant because Emacs was a, was a, you know, a Unix editor that you get masses and masses of plugins for. So a lot of the developers I worked with in the office would use that and look at me using pitiful old VI, going, well, you bet you can't do that in VI, I bet you can't do that. And then when we went out on site, I get a call from them and going, guy, I've got this machine and I need to use VI to edit this file because guess what? Emacs isn't on it. Yeah, so I'd have to take them through. It's kind of using the lowest common denominator. And that's what I did for, for many years and still do, in that I use ISE, you know, the integrated scrode, script editor, um, available from sort of PowerShell 2 onwards, because you always know, well, pretty much know it's going to be there. I mean, it's an optional component, but at least it's a Microsoft component, because a lot of this PowerShell scripting I used to do before I went freelance was on customer systems where a lot of the time you're not allowed to install third-party software. So what have you got? You've got ISE. So that's what you use. So lowest common denominator, if I'm going to write something, I will use ISE. And some great extensions for it, uh, PS uh, steroids and various other bits and pieces. I, I still use it today for a lot of my mainstream development for the, for the vendors I, I write for. I can't use it for PowerShell 7. So I'm doing quite a bit of that with REST stuff now as well. So I'm tending to use VS Code for that, begrudgingly to a certain degree, because I still get problems. But then having done some stuff with uh, Azure Function Apps recently and PowerShell Code there and its integrations with Azure and be able to push the code up there and see the logs and everything else, you can kind of see why I should perhaps get into the, uh, the 21st century, although we're recording this in 2023, but my I'm still stuck in 2022, so I've not decided if it's safe to, to leap into 2023 yet. I'm still waiting for reports from people. I don't know, is it safe, do you think, or shall I still stay in 2022? Although my music tastes are stuck in the 1980s, to be honest. <laughs> so I, I, I would say with VS Code, I struggled with it a lot early on because it was, there, there were a lot of issues with the PowerShell plugin in VS Code, but Within the last year or so, they did the PowerShell preview. They did the rollover and made a lot of the features in there with PowerShell. And I tend to prefer it now. But like I said, if that's you have to be able to install the third-party software. If you can't, you're, you better yeah. know how ISE works. Uh, yeah, I, I get fewer issues with it now. I mean, I, I used to have things not working or crashing, and it was, yeah, it was. I'd, I'd lose productivity because as a freelancer, you know, I, I build customers by the hour effectively so if i can't do something then that's time i'm i'm not earning which is why i don't you know i, I was late to the windows 11 party i only went to it just before christmas when i had to do a, a new install on a, a repaired laptop 
because I couldn't see any you know, business benefit of going to Windows 11. Yes, I like playing with nice, shiny things. And why I'm not in the Insider program either, because I can't risk you know downtime if this new feature crashes or you know, if I, I spend a long time in Windows 11 struggling to figure out how to get something to work. It's like, yeah, that's that's lost earnings. We're trying to make that money, Jordan. I, I can respect that. It's, it's a profession, right? It, well, it, this is always it. a struggle. I mean, in today's a, a case in point where I've done I've done a mostly unpaid stuff today, excluding this podcast, of course, because um, oh, it's pretty much the end of my working day here anyway. But uh, I love doing this sort of stuff anyway, except when I listen back to my own voice and go, "Do I really sound like that?" Oh my word! Same, same. Um, I, can, I can't listen to these. But, I, I love that we do them. I tried listening once and I, the self-loathing <laughs> was too much. Yeah. So, so today's been yeah, one swing towards the sort of community investigating, playing with stuff that I can't charge to customers. And, you know, I record all the, the time spent or not spent. And then when it gets to within sort of a week at the end of the month, I'll look at it and go, Oh, I'm only going to be able to allow, be able to bill this stuff, and of course, my wife has already spent all of my money and more. So, in fact, she got her credit card stolen the other week, uh, but the thief spent less than she did, so I didn't report it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just slipped one in there, didn't I? Um, yeah, so I'll look at it. And so, my 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 sort of weeks near the end of the month tend to be a lot busier with paid work than at the uh, at the start. But it's not to say my my paid work isn't interesting because I'm working with you know work uh, cutting edge stuff with Azure uh, AVD virtual desktop and uh, REST APIs in there, Azure function apps for another vendor, uh, Ansible, Terraform, yeah, you know, lots of these buzzwords I only ever heard about. I'm getting to I'm getting to use, but I mean, I, actually, which is a good point because that was something else I used to worry about. Was you know people talking about containers and Docker and Kubernetes and everything else? It's like oh, I'm not doing any of that. And I have done bits of it since, but I think, am I going to le- get left behind? Am I am I a dinosaur? In that yeah, here I am. Next week I shall reach 56 years of age. Uh, although that's just a number, of course, because I've not even decided what I want to be if I grow up yet. Uh, but in fact, if you pass 50 without growing up, you don't have to. So the law says in the UK, which is good. It's a good but law. Don't, don't worry if there's technology out there that, you, that you're not getting into. You know, there's more, far more technology out there than you've, you've got hours in the day. So work out what it is you want to do. I mean, if you're into you know, on-prem uh, exchange, for instance, which I think is is dying, then maybe you want to look at going, moving that you know, knowledge into the cloud or into into something else. But if there's, you know, if you're still uh, getting paid for what you do, and you know, should that job uh, come to an end, and you think you could get another one with that same knowledge, then then you know, by all means, stick with it. I mean, I've been doing EUC troubleshooting since, well, say, 1995. And I'm still doing it today. Yeah, the vendors produce crap apps. Users have problems. Users have slowness, and you need to figure out how to fix it and how to stop it happening again. So they, those skills are still there and still in demand. As is the, as is the coding side. This Chat GPT thing looks like it might throw a spanner in the works. And a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, guy, you need to use Chat GPT. It'll save you writing lots of code." And I think at the moment I'm a bit like the 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 guy. I don't know if you're aware of the machine gun salesman cartoon where there's a guy 
um, I shouldn't use the word guy, should I? It's not politically correct, but I'm called guy, so I can use the word guy. There's a person fighting off some invaders with a spear, and somebody's come to sell them a machine gun, which obviously do a slightly better job. Uh, not that I'm pro-gun or anything like that at all. Oh, do I get into politics, please? <laughs> um, so he's struggling with his spear, but he's going, no, 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 come back later. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And sometimes I think that's a bit like the, you know, the tooling and other things. People are coming out with all these shiny, shiny things and you're busy doing your day job. Um, so that's where I think I'm a little bit with chat GPT at the moment. And I've not played with it at all, but you know, people around me saying, yeah, you should use it. Save me writing all this code and everything else. And I'm not worried about it putting me out of a job. I mean, these low code, no code solutions come on or serverless i mean all this azure function outside i've been writing code for is serverless but it's not codeless and yeah so what what i'm trying to say there in my long rambling is that don't worry about you know other technologies but the flip side of that is don't wait for your company to throw you on a training course for you to get into it now that was a mistake i made in some points in my career, although I quickly figured it out, is that, and I, I think because a lot of training has gone online, there's a lot of more materials. You know, when I started coding and stuff, there was none of this internet stuff. You had Usenet groups on dial-up, and that, and that was about it. No online training, our training courses, or none of this remote stuff or self-paced. It was all you went somewhere and you sat in a training room. So getting trained on a new technology was a bit more difficult. But if you want to look at something to see if it's interesting or not, then you know, get you get yourself up there. Get, you know, get you either get yourself a little home lab, and it doesn't have to be much. I mean, it doesn't have to be like the, the rack mount Dell servers I've got in my garage. Again, why rack mounts? Because they're cheap as chips. You know, some people like these Intel Nooks, which are great, but I can get several rack mount servers for the cost of those. Um, yeah, I run them twenty-four by seven, so that's probably not great in terms of the electricity bill. But hey ho. Then you can play with stuff to your heart's content or you know, Azure or apparently there are other cloud providers out there as well. And so you can you know, play with stuff up there as well. Just, just just play with stuff. Don't wait for the company to thrust it in your lap. You know, if Go out and, and have a place if it is stuff you want to get into. And then you can perhaps introduce it to your company and start playing with it. Same with PowerShell. Yeah. Some, I've, I've met people in my career who go, well, who boast that they can't script? Yeah, I, I don't do scripting. I don't want to get scripting. <laughs> Is that clever or not? They used to think it was clever, but I'm I'm not so sure. But not everybody wants to be a scripter. Not everybody can be a scripter. So it's kind of know your abilities, know your limitations, know know your desires, and and follow them as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I know some people get forced into into jobs where they they you know they've got no choice due to family circumstances or location or whatever else. Uh, you know, I, I ended up my last full-time employment working for a large outsource. I absolutely hated it. I went, because after I left British Telecom in 1990, I only ever worked for small companies, which is good if you like sort of um, to be seen and heard and you don't want to be able to shy away and hide. But if you're the sort of person who doesn't want to be noticed and just wants to you know, get the paycheck at the end of the week and doesn't care about making themselves better, then that's really not the sort of place for you. And that's where bigger companies are great. So some people you know, suit bigger companies where you know, IT is just something they do as a job and you know, they leave it at work, don't do it at weekends, don't talk about it. It's, 
uh, outside of work. And that's great if that's your thing. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, I live it and breathe it, which is why I love going to conferences. You know, I, I, I code by well, joking said it earlier, I think eight days a week, but yeah, quite often seven days a week. But at my at my own pace. So it might be coding at the weekend because I've spent too long messing about with other things in the week that I couldn't charge for. Or it just might be because there's something interesting I want to have a play with or somebody's raised something on Twitter saying, do you know a way to do this or that? And I think, well, yeah, that looks interesting. I'll have a play. You know, I've got a to-do list, which is uh, about as long as something that's very long with all these technologies and other things I want to play with. How many unfinished scripts have I got? You know, forget Beethoven his unfinished symphony. This guy in his unfinished masses of scripts. And then people go, have you got a script for this? Like, yeah, I wrote. Oh. Yeah, no, I haven't quite released it yet. I haven't finished putting the comment block in or haven't finished the testing. Because again, you know, that's something I, because of you know, what I said earlier about error testing and everything else, I want to make sure that something's not going to fall over for somebody. So you know, I'll spend a lot of my own time testing things to make sure that it's hopefully not going to fall over because you know, somebody's put a, a one instead of a zero on some input. You, know, you always expect the users to do the stupidest things, and that's how I break software. I used to be known as a, a bug whisperer when I worked at a company called AppSense many years ago and because I could just break any software. And they go, well, it's your special build of your laptop guy. We can't, do, we can't replicate this in QA. No, you've got squeaky clean systems where you're logging as domain admins. I've got a device that I just use all day, every day as a non-admin. So it's a real so life device. And that that yeah, is something breaks. that will make me very angry uh, is getting the response of, well, it's your system. <laughs> no, there's something in there that caused it. That's just a lazy way out. That just means they don't want to do the research. That, that, that will, that will uh, make me pretty angry. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes you get that. I mean, I, I, I ran uh, support at AppSense for a while and yeah, it's kind of what would, that was what we'd call an environmental issue, but you're not going to, you try to figure out, you know, well, it doesn't happen in my lab or doesn't happen in my setup or no other customers are reporting this, but you know, that's not an acceptable answer. You have to try and figure out what's the difference. And that's ultimately what consultants and support people generally do is just a big long game of spot the difference. What's the difference between that system when it was working and that system when it's not working or what's the difference between this user who works okay and that user that doesn't. And that's something actually I've tried to automate with PowerShell, which is, yeah, again, still work in progress is, you know, what's changed such that this doesn't work anymore. So if you guys want to speak at all, feel free. <laughs> I think we actually have some great questions for you. If uh, <laughs> Jordan has some super special questions. Are, are we diving into the common parameters? I think I'm ready to. Yeah. I, I'm very likes. curious to hear what he's going to answer for a couple of these. I, I, I hope you're ready because each one of these is more difficult than the last question. And it's actually uh, by the end of these, most people wish that they had, Never even agreed to talk to us. I hope that you are right. ready okay, to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what was, the, what was the prize again? All right, so question one. Uh, <laughs> what is one time something went wrong while on the job, uh, and what did you l learn from it? Yeah, I, I, this is why I have to come clean and say, yeah, I know this question was coming, and I, I've really struggled <laughs> to, to find an example. And that's not because I'm perfect. I'm not perfect by a long way. I do make mistakes. Um, but I don't think I've ever done anything catastrophic that yeah. I can remember, or perhaps it was just so bad I've, I've erased it from my mind. But there, there's two options for that. One, either you've never done anything that bad, which is awesome. That's something that should go on the resume. I, I can't believe that, and I'm sure if this... Or, or the people... other one, mistakes don't stick with you, which is uh, 
amazing skill to have. Get that dirt off your shoulder. Keep it going, yeah, guy. Keep it going. shoulders. Yeah, nothing sticks here. Uh, no, 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 I've definitely messed things up in the past. Yeah, I've rebooted the wrong systems, deleted the wrong files. But yeah, you know, what I do is I come clean and say, you know, I've done this. You know, how this, and this is what I would suggest we do to, you know, to um, try and get the you know, the system, the user, whatever, back up and running as soon as possible. I apologize, but I well. Am I human? Hmm, who knows? <laughs> right, you ready for number two? That one, I know, it seems like it can't get more difficult, but it's it's going to get more difficult. Are you ready? Go on, then. Hit me with it. Right. With everything you know now, what's one tip you'd give your younger self? Enjoy life. That's Definitely. a big one. Work-life balance is something that people tend to find out later. Yeah, Definitely. But, but yeah, and sort of, I suppose, don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. It's always, always trying to see the bigger picture. Oh, yeah, this isn't working. And, you know, a phrase I used to use in, yeah, upsend support. Somebody said, oh, yeah, this isn't working. Oh, no, 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 it's not. This, this customer's really unhappy. Right. How many people have died so far? Uh, none. Right. Put it into perspective. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's not worth getting stressed about. It's a computer problem. And, Okay, yeah, it might, might stop a meltdown of a nuclear reactor, but we didn't sell software that ran in those environments, as far as I know. Well, I did go to a nuclear, been to a couple of nuclear sites. But, I, uh, I would hope if you're doing something to keep a nuclear reactor running, you're not doing anything in prod until it's been tested thoroughly. I've heard this word test before. So remind <laughs> me what it means again. <laughs> well, now I'm nervous. <laughs> Dude, guy, that's some wise advice. You're hitting us with some real life advice. Well, right there. I've been working, well, say coding across, I'm, I'm working across five decades now. So, yeah, I've seen, <laughs> seen a few things in my life. I've made a few mistakes, made a few bad career decisions. Yeah. So, I'd like people to learn from that. My younger self, possibly not. I'm working on that time machine, but yeah, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. It's a good reminder, though. You know, it is going to be okay. Might get a little bumpy. Be honest. Well, like hindsight is answer. the only exact science, after all, isn't it? But again, there's no point sitting there regretting, going, "Oh, I wish I'd done that." Oh, there's no point. It's like, yeah, you've got to learn from your mistakes and move on. And yes, I know it's easy to sit here and say that. And yeah, I, I've you know, wallowed in my own self pity many times in, in the past. And you can look back and go, "Oof, yeah, that that was difficult." But yeah, you, you need to realize what's important to you. Seek their help, whether they got two legs or four, and yeah, move on. I, I mean, I, I wish I could do that. I, I, I things faster with me. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna come clean with with all of our listeners. I remember the first date with my wife as a sophomore in high school, and I was an idiot. And she's married me now. Things are going great. And I still think back to that first date as a sophomore and just kick myself. So apparently I can't let go of anything, even when the, the uh, way it turned out is okay. Well, I met my wife at a lap dancing club, but I'm sure she should have been at home looking after our kids. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? For... <laughs> are you ready? It's a, a lap dog dancing, yeah. right? Like a small dog <laughs> Laptop. <laughs> oh yes, that's what I meant. Yes, yes. The, the final common parameter. What are your three favorite modules? <laughs> yeah, let's keep it light. Ooh. 
modules. I like the lunar module. That was quite good, wasn't it? So, <laughs> it did some things. Now, now, interestingly, I'm not a great fan of modules. That's not because I like reinventing the wheel and writing them myself. I definitely don't. I appreciate some of the modules, a lot of the modules that are out there. But because some of the vendors I work for have got to produce code that needs to run standalone, and if you say to a customer, oh, can you install this PowerShell prerequisite on there? They'll go, what's a prerequisite? How do I install it? What's PowerShell? Because the, the PowerShell I write for these customers is hidden from their end users. And the end users are, are going to be admins and you know, sysops, those sorts of people. But they're running these scripts without knowing how to run PowerShell. So as soon as you start giving them a module to use, then unless you're going to install it in the script itself and then there's questions about security, although you can download it and check checksums and check um, digital signatures and all that sort of stuff. It's Do you really want to be doing that on a customer's production network? Possibly not. Um, but of the ones I use, yeah, I mean, I, I like a lot of the uh, Azure ones or AZ, as I think you uh, Americans call them. Um uh, PS Readline, which is kind of built in, but certainly in the latest um, version bundled with PowerShell 7.3.1, it's got some pretty awesome features like the F2 toggle. So rather than you just yeah, searching through the history, if you hit F2, it'll it'll show you below your cursor sort of a, a dozen lines where you've used that text before. So it's like the Control-R searching, which was stolen from Unix shell, but works very well, certainly much better than uh, cursor up, cursor down. Um, but it's like that on steroids with the uh, the PS read line. So that's, that's kind of two. Um, I use the Citrix ones a lot, but they're definitely not my favorite ones because they're still snappings under the hood. And, and snappings are deprecated in PowerShell version 2, which was released about... 40 or 50 years ago. So there's no excuse for still using snap-ins. So their code doesn't work with PowerShell 7. Um, so are there any I absolutely must have? It says he stalling for time while he looks at his uh, in, installed modules list to see what I, I've got over and above. I can hmm. swap this out. I have a different question for this last ah, one, if I, could, okay. if I can squeeze one in here real quick. So you mentioned earlier how you kind of like using the basic tools that are available, the least common denominator stuff with your style of work and the way that you work that works really well, even to not even uh, to the point where you're not using chat GPT, which is pretty trendy right now. So, Oh, I intend to use it. It's on my list, okay. my to-do list, but at, at item 423, I think, if I remember correctly. Relatable. I hear you there. But do you have a name for this approach? Is there a name for this approach of kind of like rocking with the ISE, keeping it simple, delivering scripts rather than modules without dependencies, you know, this kind of thing? Do you have a, a name for this style? Hmm, interesting. I think I'd probably call it Kevin. <laughs> no, that's probably not a very meaningful name, is it? We started talking about Kevin. Um, lowest common denominator, um, the yeah, we all know about the KISS approach, I take it. You know, to keep it oh, simple, that's good. stupid. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff I do, I, I don't overcomplicate. I mean, if, if there's a solution to a problem which doesn't involve a script, then I'll tell a customer, yeah, this is a better solution than you know, writing a script. I'm not going to write a script to solve a, a two-minute problem and it's going to take two days. Or it's going to be difficult to maintain. Yeah, it, it, keep it simple. Keep it within the, the realms of supportability. Uh, that's not quite as catchy as the KISS approach. Perhaps there's an acronym for that, but uh, 
yeah, definitely needs to be a bit of an approach for that. But you know, I'm not saying don't use all these tools. Definitely do. But you know, work out what you're going to do and what and where you're going to use them. There's no point getting used to all these fancy things if then you go to an environment where they just ain't available. Lowest common denominator, LCD. Good point. So one thing that stuck out, you mentioned one time where specific modules, if you go to a customer, you don't have it and they don't know enough to load the prerequisites that you might need. Uh, there, there's a guy I used to work with, uh, Kobe Bulma, who's contributed more to my inadequacy complex and my intelligence than anybody else. But he built a function that would go through and you could just pr provide a module name and it'll go through all the steps for them where it will see if it's installed and if it's not, it will install it, import it and get it all ready to go. And he just, so it's a, function he can call at the top of all of his scripts so whatever module he needs the the groundwork's been laid to make it easier on people i thought it was a pretty slick piece of code yeah i mean some of that's now built into to PowerShell with you know with, with find module and install module and install package uh, but then you say so there's always the security question yeah you know, have you got access to an external network. If you're running a script as a privileged user, you know, a service account or domain admin or something else, do you really want to be downloading code that you can't guarantee is is what it should be? But again, you know, some of my, I've done some uh, MSIX scripts, if you've, if you've come across that, Microsoft's new uh, installer mechanism, replacement for AppV and MSI packages. Now I've got a scripts that automate all of that and they'll, automate the downloading of the tooling as well. So they go and grab the tooling from Microsoft, but the first thing they do is actually check the digital sig you know, signature, check the digital certificate of the signed package and make sure it is still authentic. So if somebody's done a man in the middle of attack, somehow redirected it through hosts file attack or something like that, and wants to replace it with something else, then you know, it's not gonna get through my checking of that certificate, for instance. So you've got to think, and, and, and well, it's probably something I should have said earlier, but you know, all PowerShell developers really have to think about security. So every time you think, oh, I'm just going to put these credentials in clear text in this script, or I'm not going to check if this folder is that I'm going to delete because the user's asked me to, it isn't actually the System32 folder. Yeah. So making sure that, you know, any any place where your script could accidentally or deliberately go wrong and be used as a, a means of offense that you put defensive code in. So one, one technique I use a lot in PowerShell is to use its built-in confirmation um, technique. So I'm sure most people listening will have heard or seen a script run and it says, are you sure you want to do this? You know, yes, no, or cancel. That's just very easy to use in PowerShell. You've just got to put a little bit of stuff, which I can't even remember off the top of my head, but I go to another script and paste it into the commandlet binding bit. And then you just have if ps commandlet dot should process and then your question. And it handles it for you, which also means you can do the what ifs. So you can do dry runs and that, that sort of stuff I will do in any script where anything is you know, destructive or going to change anything is are you sure? Because at least it gives you a bit of comeback as well as a disclaimer in your text that says you use this at your own risk. And somebody says, well, it deleted 10,000 users. Well, the bit where it said, are you sure you want to delete 10,000 users? And you sit, click yes. Didn't that ring a slight alarm bell? Oh, guy, I thought it was you. I thought you were joking. <laughs> yeah, no, I take my scripts very seriously. Well, except for the comments. Sometimes I might put a joke in the comments, but 
you know, my scripts I do take very seriously because they're works of art after all. But yeah, always think with security in mind. Absolutely. That, that is fantastic advice because especially when you're automating, you get something through the automating, you're looking for consistent pain. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Well, guy, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but uh, you said you have uh, five decades of spanning where you've been working on your coding. Indeed, but, 1980 to 2023 and beyond. Nice. But Andrew has compressed 50 years of shilling expertise <laughs> into not even a full year. So we sit before the greatest authority of shilling on the planet. And uh, he, he's going he's gonna to show us what the magic looks like. Cool. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, Guy, on a scale of one to five, what would you give us? Sorry, is that binary or is that decimal? We're going decimal today. Yeah. What would you give oh, us? Oh, hexadecimal. So... That sounds like a five to me. Yeah, I, I was, I was going to go six, but... Oh, wow. If you can't... Uh, no, if I you can't because I always put bounds checking in on all my scripts, uh, so well, only legal values are allowed. Five will work then. As Guy says, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you're on YouTube, I'm on YouTube. Are you on YouTube? If you are, give us a like, comment, and subscribe. Tell us what your favorite guy joke is. And if you're going to check out his next stand-up special, it's coming. Uh, you can email us, PowerShell at PDQ.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at PowerShellPod. We got weekly episodes. We're coming up on a year strong. Wow. Thanks for being here for the ride. Guy, thank you for joining us. I giggled, I giggled, I giggled. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Two kinds of flavor, two kinds of crunch. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick.